Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. So, good afternoon. I am uh, Dr. James Anderson, and I am the president of the Institute of World Politics. Uh, the Institute of World Politics is a graduate school of national security, international affairs, and intelligence, and it's dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of international realities and grounded in ethical conduct. Um, it's my pleasure this afternoon to, uh, to host a, uh, the distinguished guest that we have, uh, the Honorable David J. Trachtenberg, who is currently serving as the Vice President at the National Institute for Public Policy. Uh, we are delighted to have him here uh, this afternoon to talk about a very important topic, uh, the evolution of US nuclear policy, continuity and change. And uh, I think most of our attendees have, have had a chance to look at his uh, distinguished bio, but let me, let me summarize a couple of points for you by way of introduction. Uh, David has over 40 years of uh, experience in, in government and the private sector, uh, working on national security issues, uh, and he brings all that experience to the lecture this afternoon. He has served as a senior leader on Capitol Hill. He worked on the HASC, the House Armed Services Committee, and he also has worked for a couple of, of administrations, including George W. Bush and the most recent Trump administration. Uh, having served in leadership positions in both. And his most recent uh, title, government title, he served as a Senate-confirmed official as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy uh, from 2017 to uh, 2018. Uh, I'm sorry, to, to 2017 to 2019. Um, and in that capacity, was responsible for a wide range of uh, the entire universe of, of policy issues. Uh, from nuclear weapons to Arctic security uh, to civilian casualties and everything in between. Um, and I would say his only, uh, uh, only lapse in judgment was uh, to recommend that I follow in his footsteps uh, after he departed the Pentagon. Uh, David is the recipient of uh, many awards and is also uh, has authored uh, quite a number of uh, articles and op-eds and, uh, and books uh, to include an excellent book on the role of Congress and national security that came out earlier this year. Um, but with that, let me, uh, let me turn it over to our distinguished guest and he will uh, present some thoughts and then uh, would ask the audience to uh, submit uh, questions through the question portal, which we will get to in the uh, second half of this hour. Uh, so, David, over to you. Well, thank you very much, uh, James. I really appreciate that. And my thanks to you, uh, as well as to the entire uh, Institute of World Politics team for the invitation to uh, spend some time and talk to you a little bit today. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. Uh, and I appreciate your kind introduction. Uh, the Institute of World Politics has a distinguished history of educating students on the importance of statecraft uh, and the integration of different elements of power in the furtherance of US national security goals and objectives uh, to include not only military, but economic, political, and diplomatic levers of power. Some have referred to this as a whole of government approach 
Uh, and I think it's a necessity in today's complex and dynamic, increasingly dynamic strategic environment. So what I'd like to do today, however, is focus on the military aspect of power, and in particular, the nuclear element, because US nuclear weapons form the backbone of our nation's security. They provide a deterrent against direct attack on the United States. They extend security to our allies and they enhance our freedom of action abroad, underpinning our ability to use conventional forces in support of American interests and objectives, national security objectives, backed up of course, by the other elements of statecraft I mentioned. So I'd like to take some time to discuss the evolution of US nuclear policy with specific focus on the continuities that have existed over many decades and that have carried over from administration to administration, as well as some of the possible changes to longstanding policy that now may be under consideration. Uh, the first thing I would say is it may seem somewhat ironic or counterintuitive to talk about continuities in US nuclear policy when every new administration seeks, in, at least in part, to distance itself from its predecessor on many policy issues. And especially when almost everything now appears to be seen through a partisan political prism. But the message I want to convey up front is that despite the rhetoric, there's been a remarkable amount of continuity in the US government's approach to nuclear policy and weapons issues. Some of these continuities are clearly evident in the various nuclear posture reviews that have been done by multiple administrations, both Democratic and Republican. There have been four nuclear posture reviews so far, all done since the end of the Cold War. Uh, I had the privilege uh, or misfortune of working on two of them in the Bush administration and in the Trump administration. While there have been policy changes and course corrections, these have mostly involved individual programmatic decisions rather than fundamental principles of nuclear strategy and reflect disagreements over how much is enough for effective deterrence, not whether nuclear deterrence itself remains essential. Uh, for example, there's currently a debate over whether we need to proceed with a full range of planned nuclear modernization programs. These include the Columbia-class submarine program, which is a follow-on to the current Ohio-class strategic ballistic missile submarine, the B-21 bomber, uh, and the long-range standoff weapon, which is a follow-on to the air-launched cruise missile deployed in the 1980s, and the ground-based strategic deterrent, a replacement missile for the Minuteman ICBM. Each of these programs is under review by the Biden administration, uh, and it's too soon to say whether all or some will survive. However, 
given the increasing obsolescence of our existing nuclear forces, I would hope that we have the wisdom and the foresight to understand the value they provide in helping us keep the peace, and that that value is well worth their monetary cost. Now, some critics of the modernization program have proposed that we move away from a triad of land-based, sea-based, and air-breathing platforms and rely on a dyad of systems, perhaps scrapping the ICBMs or eliminating the bombers. Uh, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry uh, has suggested we don't need ICBMs at all, calling them destabilizing, arguing they are on hair trigger alert, and asserting they are unnecessary. Uh, personally, I don't subscribe to those arguments at all, uh, as I think the triad has demonstrated its enduring value over many decades. Each leg of the triad provides a hedge against the failure of one of the other legs or a technological breakthrough by an adversary that nullifies the effectiveness of one or more of our delivery platforms. Historically, there's been no daylight between administrations of both parties on the value the triad provides. And despite some pockets of opposition, there has been significant bipartisan support on Capitol Hill for proceeding with the current nuclear modernization plans. I would add that the current modernization program was actually initiated by the Obama administration and supported in full by the Trump administration. Again, demonstrating a bipartisan consensus for upgrading our aging nuclear delivery systems. I believe this modernization effort is long overdue and absolutely essential, especially in today's geopolitical environment in which great power competitors like China and Russia are engaged in an extensive nuclear buildup of their own and seek to use their nuclear potential for coercive purposes, including to prevent the United States from intervening when they seek to expand their territorial ambitions. Despite calls in some quarters to eliminate nuclear weapons entirely, and what I consider to be an impractical UN-sponsored treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons that purports to do so, there remains a strong bipartisan consensus in the United States that nuclear deterrence remains essential to US security. The issue of how many nuclear weapons are enough for deterrence and whether other elements of national power can be employed instead in order to reduce our reliance on nuclear weapons remain topics of controversy decades after the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Yet despite these disagreements, the fundamental tenets of US nuclear weapons policy and strategy have remained remarkably consistent. So let me take a couple minutes to mention some of these continuities in US nuclear policy that have existed on a bipartisan basis over Republican and Democratic administrations, continuities which reflect broad principles of agreement. Now, I suspect most, if not all of these, are likely to be supported by the Biden administration, 
as it conducts its own review of US nuclear posture. For example, every administration has considered nuclear weapons to be weapons of last resort. They represent a unique category of weaponry as only the president may authorize their use. This has been an issue that's generated some controversy lately with respect to nuclear launch authority, but only the president has the authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Despite this, some have proposed to remove the president's sole authority in this area, arguing that it is an outdated Cold War relic that circumvents the Congress's constitutional authority to declare war. Personally, I am wholly unpersuaded by this argument, but the Biden administration is being asked to consider it in its nuclear posture review. Second, because of the unique role of nuclear weapons, their safety, security, and control have always been considered of paramount importance. This principle has led to the development of special safeguards for nuclear weapons, like the two-man rule, or detailed authentication procedures for their launch, uh, permissive action links, uh, storage site protection, and other types of protective measures. How important is this? Well, I think we all remember, at least many of us remember, what happened in 2007 when nuclear cruise missiles were mistakenly loaded onto a bomber and flown from Minot to Barksdale Air Force Base. Both the Secretary of the Air Force and the Air Force Chief of Staff lost their jobs as a result. Safety, security, and positive control uh, is key. Third, every administration has considered the nuclear triad to be valuable and essential to US security. As I mentioned, the triad provides resilience, survivability, flexibility, and a hedge against the potential failure of one leg or an adversarial technological breakthrough. Fourth, every administration has considered the so-called nuclear umbrella essential to US and allied security. The United States extends its nuclear security guarantees literally to dozens of other countries, including all of our NATO allies. Our extended deterrent is one of the greatest disincentives to proliferation to other nations seeking to develop or acquire nuclear weapons on their own. And I don't foresee any change in the important role that US nuclear weapons play in extending deterrence to others. Uh, fifth point, every administration has considered and rejected a minimum deterrence, a so-called minimum deterrence force as inadequate for guaranteeing US security. Uh, even President Carter, who declared that only one of our strategic submarines could destroy 250 of the Soviet Union's largest urban industrial areas, recognized that for effective deterrence, 
the United States required more than just a minimum deterrent force. In fact, it was President Carter who signed Presidential Directive 59, PD 59, the so-called countervailing strategy, which actually laid the groundwork for the Reagan buildup that followed. Now, what areas of continuity or consistency in nuclear policy might be changed as a result of the Biden administration's ongoing review of US nuclear posture? Let me mention two possibilities uh, in particular. First is the issue of sole purpose. Uh, in other words, what is the purpose of our nuclear arsenal and should its sole purpose be to deter nuclear attack on the US homeland or our allies. Now, when running for the presidency last year, then candidate Biden stated that, quote, the sole purpose of the US nuclear arsenal should be deterring and if necessary, retaliating against a nuclear attack, end quote. However, that has never been the sole purpose of our nuclear arsenal. During the Cold War, the United States relied on its nuclear weapons to deter a massive Soviet invasion of Western Europe. President Eisenhower's new look, so-called new look policy, relied heavily on the threat to use nuclear weapons as a deterrent to Soviet con conventional aggression. Other presidents, including Truman, Kennedy, Nixon, Carter, and George H.W. Bush, signaled a willingness to rely on US nuclear forces to prevent conventional aggression. They may not have liked it, but they recognized the inherent deterrent value of threatening to respond to conventional aggression, if necessary, with nuclear weapons. President Kennedy reportedly told his Joint Chiefs of Staff, quote, a Soviet move on Berlin leaves me with only one alternative, which is to fire nuclear weapons. In addition, the United States has relied on its nuclear arsenal to deter attacks using other weapons of mass destruction, such as chemical or biological weapons. Now, as a party to the Biological Weapons Convention and the Chemical Weapons Convention, the United States maintains no offensive chemical or biological weapons that would serve as an in-kind deterrent to such attacks. Even the Obama administration, which sought to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in our national security strategy, recognized that the utility of these weapons extended well beyond deterring only nuclear attack and rejected sole purpose arguments, noting there remains a narrow range of contingencies in which US nuclear weapons may still play a role in deterring a conventional or chemical or biological weapons attack against the United States or its allies and partners. The United States is therefore not prepared at the present time to adopt a universal policy that deterring nuclear attack is the sole purpose of nuclear weapons. Now, although the Obama administration sought to establish conditions under which such a policy could be safely adopted, 
those conditions never materialized. Given the use of chemical weapons by Russia, North Korea, and Syria, the reemergence of great power competition, and the more aggressive actions taken by both China and Russia in recent years, I would argue this is hardly the time to adopt a sole purpose nuclear policy. The second area likely to come under review by the Biden administration is the issue of no first use of nuclear weapons. In 2017, then Vice President Biden stated, quote, given our non-nuclear capabilities and the nature of today's threats, it's hard to envision a plausible scenario in which the first use of nuclear weapons by the United States would be necessary or make sense, end quote. Various groups and organizations have been seeking to pressure the Biden administration to adopt a no first use policy by declaring that the United States will not be the first party to use nuclear weapons. In fact, several months ago, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, and the House Armed Services Committee Chairman Adam Smith reintroduced a bill called the No First Use Act to codify as a matter of policy that the United States will not use nuclear weapons first. Of course, such a policy would overturn decades of bipartisan support for maintaining the option to respond to aggression by threatening the use of nuclear weapons. And as every administration has concluded, would likely undermine the credibility and effectiveness of the US nuclear deterrent, as well as the viability of the US extended deterrent, the so-called nuclear umbrella. I believe any changes to these fundamental principles would be a serious mistake. A no first use declaratory policy conveys little benefit and carries significant risks, not the least of which is it would raise serious questions about the viability of the security guarantees that the United States provides to dozens of allies. In the wake of our chaotic departure from Afghanistan, I would argue the last thing we need are additional reasons to raise doubts in the minds of others over American resolve and the credibility of America's extended deterrence commitments. So let me spend a couple of minutes here now to look at the various nuclear posture reviews that were done to see where there are other areas of similarity and difference. All were done after the end of the Cold War when the issue of what to do about US nuclear weapons in the absence of a Soviet threat became an item of significant debate. First was the Clinton nuclear posture review. The Clinton NPR was completed in 1994. It was the first review of US nuclear posture undertaken in the new post-Cold War strategic environment. And as such, it provided an opening for advocates of a post-Cold War peace dividend to argue for reductions in American nuclear potential uh, and spending on nuclear weapons. The purpose of the review, which by the way, was co-chaired by Ash Carter, 
who later became the Secretary of Defense in the Obama administration and played a key role in the 2010 nuclear posture review, was to help shape a future by creating, in the words of the NPR, a world in which the role of nuclear weapons is reduced, and also to build a cooperative relationship with Russia to help prevent proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Both of those goals, reducing the role of nuclear weapons in national security strategy and seeking to build a cooperative relationship, more cooperative relationship with Russia, carried over into subsequent nuclear posture reviews. The 1994 review recommended quantitative reductions and qualitative improvements in the US nuclear arsenal. Again, also similar to recommendations that emerged in subsequent NPRs and further evidence of similar policy approaches taken by various administrations. For example, the Clinton NPR proposed a number of reductions in the ICBM, SLBM, and bomber legs of the triad. But importantly, it recommended preserving the triad, noting that each leg had unique and complementary attributes. Despite the reductions outlined in the 1994 NPR, President Clinton acknowledged that the US needed to maintain nuclear forces of sufficient size and capability to hold at risk a broad range of assets that adversaries value. Again, this does not seem like a minimum deterrent posture. The second nuclear posture review that was done uh, was the 2001 Bush administration NPR. Like its predecessor, the 2001 NPR also started from the premise that the global security environment had changed and that Russia was no longer an enemy. Accordingly, it stated that the United States will no longer plan, size, or sustain its forces as though Russia presented merely a smaller version of the threat posed by the former Soviet Union. The big concern at the time was rogue states, the so-called rogue states like North Korea seeking weapons of mass destruction. And the 2001 NPR argued that deterrence was increasingly uncertain. The reliability of deterrence was increasingly uncertain against rogue states. In other words, the balance of terror that existed during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was no longer an adequate basis for US strategic planning. The Bush nuclear posture review called for a broad range of strategic capabilities necessary to tailor deterrence in credible ways. Among other things, it noted that a strategic posture that relies solely on offensive nuclear forces is inappropriate for deterring the potential adversaries we will face in the 21st century. Like other administrations, the Bush administration recognized that US nuclear weapons deter more than just nuclear attack. And like the Clinton nuclear posture review, the Bush NPR 
also sought to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in US national security strategy, proposing quantitative reductions combined with qualitative improvements in the US nuclear arsenal. One of the unique aspects of the Bush NPR was reflected in its articulation of a new construct called the new triad, consisting of strike forces, including nuclear and advanced conventional forces, defenses, including missile defenses, uh, and what was termed responsive infrastructure, basically to support the other elements of the strategy. Critics of the Bush NPR uh, often mischaracterized it as rejecting deterrence in favor of nuclear warfighting or blurring the distinction between nuclear and conventional forces, increasing the emphasis on nuclear weapons, lowering the nuclear threshold, and making nuclear weapons more usable. In fact, it did nothing of the sort. It did not change the fact that only the president can authorize nuclear use. It supported substantial nuclear reductions that resulted in the Moscow Treaty signed between the United States uh, and uh, the Russian Federation that reduced the number of deployed nuclear weapons from some 6,000 to between 1,700 and 2,200, the largest reduction to date in the US nuclear arsenal. And it provided for additional means to bolster deterrence with advanced conventional and strategic defensive capabilities. In 2010, the Obama administration released its nuclear posture review. And whereas President Obama was thought to reject many of the policies of his predecessor, on nuclear policy, I would argue, there were interesting areas of similarity and continuity. For example, the 2010 NPR also focused on reducing the role of nuclear weapons in US national security strategy. In this case, by in part, by reducing the number of nuclear weapons through arms control agreements. Along, and along with the release of the NPR in April of 2010, the US signed the New START Treaty with Russia. The NPR also reaffirmed the importance of extended deterrence and the assurance of allies, noting that American investments in prompt global strike capabilities and regional missile defense capabilities will help maintain the credibility of our deterrent, assure allies, and discourage them from acquiring their own nuclear weapons. Sound familiar? It should. The NPR, the 2010 NPR, also emphasized the importance of sustaining a safe, secure, and effective nuclear arsenal, another constant theme highlighted by previous administrations. It emphasized the need to modernize the strategic nuclear triad, and it supported billions of dollars of new investments in the nuclear enterprise to rebuild America's aging nuclear infrastructure. In short, the Obama nuclear posture review 
actually reiterated many of the themes expressed in the Bush nuclear posture review, including reducing the role uh, and the, the, uh, of nuclear weapons and the number of nuclear weapons in US national security strategy, seeking to work cooperatively with Russia, not as an adversary, but as a partner, developing advanced conventional capabilities to strengthen deterrence, supporting missile defenses to protect US forces and assure allies, and investing in the nuclear enterprise to modernize its ability to support our deterrence requirements. Uh, these continuities may seem strange given the different worldviews of Presidents Bush and Obama, but again, they reflect longstanding bipartisan tradition in the area of nuclear policy. Where the 2010 Nuclear Posture Review broke with tradition, and in particular with its predecessor, was in its focus on nuclear proliferation and terrorism as the most immediate and extreme danger. Uh, its prohibition on the development of any new nuclear weapons, capabilities, or missions. Its reluctance to support a more robust homeland missile defense, uh, which the NPR characterized as a desire to promote strategic stability with Russia and China, in reality, uh, a euphemism for remaining vulnerable to nuclear attack from Russia and China, uh, and its desire to seek the ultimate elimination of nuclear weapons worldwide, which President Obama admitted was unlikely to occur anytime soon. Now, the last nuclear posture review that was done was the Trump nuclear posture review in 2018. What changed between 2010 and 2018 was the strategic environment and the national defense strategy highlighted the reemergence of great power competition. Russia had become increasingly aggressive, invading Georgia, seizing Crimea, launching further military aggression against Ukraine, actually threatening nuclear attacks on NATO and non-NATO countries, violating the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, as well as the Open Skies Treaty, elevating the role of nuclear weapons in its own security strategy and developing multiple new nuclear weapon systems, including a variety of systems unconstrained by existing arms control agreements. The Trump Nuclear Posture Review recognized these ominous trends and called for a tailored, flexible nuclear strategy to strengthen deterrence, acknowledging that there is no one size fits all for deterrence. Despite the different worldviews of President Obama and President Trump, the 2018 NPR fully supported the nuclear modernization program initiated by the Obama administration, proposing only two modest supplemental capabilities, a low-yield ballistic missile warhead and a nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missile. Neither of these capabilities are new, and both are intended to dissuade Russia in particular from believing it could escalate to de-escalate a conflict 
in its favor by exploiting any nuclear advantage it currently possesses. The low-yield ballistic missile warhead has been deployed uh, on U.S. submarines. However, the nuclear sea-launched cruise missile will take years to bring to fruition if it survives at all. There are indications the Biden administration may cancel this system as part of its own nuclear posture review. Uh, such a decision, in my view, would be a mistake. I think the nuclear sea-launched cruise missile would strengthen deterrence, provide the president with additional flexibility and options for responding to aggression, and help reassure allies, especially in the Indo-Pacific region, who are concerned about China's nuclear buildup and growing aggressiveness and assertiveness. Uh, critics have focused on these two supplemental capabilities to accuse the Trump administration of adopting, having adopted a war fighting nuclear posture. Uh, I think that's nonsense. The paradox of deterrence is that it's based on the threat of punishment, which means you must have tools that are capable of exacting punishment. If your weapons are seen as unusable, how can they deter? How credible are our deterrent threats if they're based on weapons that cannot be used? We don't have nuclear weapons so that we can fight a nuclear war. We have nuclear weapons so that we can prevent a nuclear war. By doing what we can to dissuade any adversary or potential adversary from believing they have an exploitable military advantage that would allow them to strike with impunity. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that anytime someone suggests we need tailored nuclear capabilities to bolster deterrence against a variety of potential adversaries, they're often accused by critics of having a nuclear warfighting mentality. I think this reflects a lack of understanding of what deterrence is all about. And, and, and frankly, I'm still amazed at, some, uh, at how some who criticize the US arsenal as being overly destructive, uh, having too much uh, so-called overkill, also criticize efforts to reduce the level of destructiveness by arguing that doing so makes the use of nuclear weapons more likely. In my view, you can't have it both ways. And history certainly doesn't support this contention. Uh, the low-yield ballistic missile warhead does not change the equation of nuclear deterrence. Moreover, those who criticize the nuclear sea launch cruise missile as destabilizing uh, unfortunately often fail to note that Russia has deployed nuclear sea launch cruise missiles for years. I fail to understand why it's stabilizing or okay for Russia to possess a system that is destabilizing for the United States to possess. So let me summarize the various areas of continuity in US nuclear policy reflected in the four nuclear posture reviews that have been done to date. Each nuclear posture review supported maintaining a strategic triad of nuclear delivery systems. Each supported qualitative technological improvements to the US nuclear arsenal. Each supported missile defenses to protect deployed US forces and allies. Each supported the development of advanced conventional military capabilities. Each supported maintaining and strengthening our extended deterrent commitment to allies. Each rejected sole purpose arguments regarding the role of US nuclear weapons. 
uh, and each rejected calls to adopt a no first use nuclear policy. Each NPR also considered the use of nuclear weapons to be a last resort as a matter of declaratory policy. And each rejected missile defenses that could protect the homeland against near-peer missile threats. I think that's an issue that does need to be reassessed in light of what both Russia and China are doing with their own nuclear arsenals. Uh, in addition, three of the four nuclear posture reviews aligned by considering Russia to be more of a strategic partner than an adversary. Three of the four sought to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in US national security strategy. And three of the four supported quantitative reductions in our nuclear arsenal. Uh, clearly the 2018 Trump nuclear posture review did not support those objectives in light of the changed strategic environment. Uh, three of the four also emphasized the need to revitalize the nation's nuclear infrastructure and rejected the goal of nuclear weapons elimination. Uh, one might argue all four rejected the goal of nuclear uh, elimination, but the 2010 Obama NPR uh, cited that goal as a long-term goal, uh, something that required a number of preconditions to take effect before we'd ever be in a position to reach, uh, to uh, actually arrive at, at a point in time where we could reasonably consider global nuclear elimination. So let me end here where I began. US nuclear policy is generally reflected more continuity than change, in particular uh, on, on the big tenets of US nuclear policy. Those fundamental tenets of US nuclear policy for example, support for the triad, support for nuclear modernization, rejection of a no first use declaratory policy have enjoyed strong bipartisan support over multiple administrations. Yes, there have been differences in approach. Some of those differences in approach played out in the various nuclear posture reviews that have been issued. And whether or not all of these, uh, all of these, uh, consistencies and continuities will remain the case when the Biden administration completes its nuclear posture review, obviously uh, remains to be seen. Uh, let me stop there uh, and thank you for the opportunity to discuss these issues today. Uh, and I'll be happy to take uh, any questions. David, thank you for uh, your very comprehensive remarks on continuity and change uh, regarding US nuclear policy. Uh, we have some questions that have come in. Uh, one of the questions has to do with the PRC and the, uh, the growth of the uh, China's arsenal uh, over time. And uh, there have been some recent reports, public reports about the discovery of uh, new missile fields. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, the question is, uh, the question is uh, how should the United States uh, respond and approach to the trajectory of the PRC's nuclear growth first, and then second and relatedly, uh, do you think that the PRC may be open at some future point to strategic arms control 
uh, perhaps of the nature that was uh, attempted uh, for a brief brief spell during the Trump administration. Over to you. Uh, I think those are both excellent questions. Uh, in terms of how the United States should approach China's nuclear buildup, uh, I think what China is doing, China is sending a clear message. Uh, I, I believe the Chinese are looking to expand their nuclear potential uh, in support of, of their own objectives, goals and objectives, well, and, and to use that nuclear potential coercively. Uh, obviously, China has made uh, recent comments threatening uh, not only Taiwan, uh, but other partners uh, of the United States, in including Japan. Uh, China, China has threatened, has actually threatened uh, to launch nuclear weapons against Japan if Japan gets involved in any conflict between China and Taiwan. Uh, so Chinese, I think, uh, the Chinese, I believe, uh, are taking a much more belligerent approach in their, in their foreign policy. And I think their nuclear buildup reflects their goals and objectives, which I would argue are, are not uh, in alignment with US objectives. We look at our nuclear weapons as a means of deterrence uh, to prevent aggression. Uh, I think China views its nuclear weapons and the buildup of its nuclear weapons as, as, as a means to enable aggression or territorial aggrandizement. Uh, and, and I think because our goals and objectives are different, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to get, the, to get China to enter into a nuclear agreement with the United States, uh, similar to the New START Treaty. Uh, because I, don't, I think the Chinese don't wish to be constrained in their, in their nuclear buildup. That's not to say uh, we shouldn't try, because I think bilateral arms control has, has now basically, uh, in my view, run its course. Uh, and we need to be we need to be looking at, uh, at at China and trying to figure out how to deal with what China is clearly doing. Uh, I'm a bit skeptical that China would agree to an to arms control limits because China's basic goals and objectives are different than ours, uh, and it's really hard to get a, get any kind of arms control agreement among parties that have different objectives. Hopefully, that answers the question. Thank you, David. We have uh, uh, another question that has to do with uh, still other nuclear powers. Uh, and the question is, uh, how does the French and the, how do the French and the British nuclear arsenals sort of factor in to U.S. considerations regarding nuclear deterrence? Yeah, that's also a very good question. Uh, obvious, uh, obviously, uh, the French and the British maintain their own independent nuclear deterrence. Uh, but uh, France and Britain uh, are part of the NATO are part of the NATO alliance. Uh, in our uh, discussions uh, with Russia uh, on arms control, the Russians always insist and have always insisted, uh, even during uh, the Soviet days, have always insisted on including the independent nuclear arsenals of Britain and France in any arms control agreement. Uh, we have always, uh, I think, properly resisted that. Uh, the British and French forces are, are relatively minor, uh, certainly compared to ours, uh, compared to those of the Russian Federation. 
uh, and they exist again for the purposes of deterrence, uh, not as a backstop for aggressive actions that either Britain or France would take uh, on the world stage. So are, are they a factor? I don't think they're much of a factor. I think they, they become more of, a, uh, more of an element uh, to score propaganda points uh, on the part of uh, Russia or others uh, by arguing that no agreements can be reached without including the independent nuclear forces of, of the UK and France. Uh, but uh, from a practical standpoint, uh, I don't. I don't see that. I don't see that happening. Uh, I think that's up to Britain and France to decide uh, what they want to do. And in fact, uh, both Britain and France uh, historically uh, have both reduced the levels of nuclear weapons in their own uh, nuclear arsenals quite significantly since the days of the Cold War. So uh, I don't think that's much of a factor. Okay. Thank you. Uh, moving from allies to adversaries. Uh, the next question has to do with Tehran and Tehran's uh, nuclear ambitions. Uh, how should the United States uh, approach uh, those nuclear ambitions? That's a, that's a question that uh, it's certainly uh, obviously relevant uh, as, a, as a topic of discussion now with the Biden administration seeking to try to find a way to uh, re-enter the United States uh, into the JCPOA, in, in, into the uh, so-called Iran nuclear deal. Uh, I, I, I personally believe that Iran has nuclear ambitions, regardless of, of what the Iranian leadership uh, states. I'm personally worried about developments uh, in Iran uh, in terms of uh, the, some of the things that Iran has done that suggest they're actively working uh, and perhaps actively seeking to hide uh, some, uh, some things they are doing that could allow them to acquire a nuclear capability. Uh, but I think, I, I think the answer to the question is the United States needs to demonstrate resolve. The United States needs to get, uh, get uh, really get tough uh, on Iran. And that means coming back to what I said at the outset, applying all elements of national power to include economic, sanctions, political, diplomatic, and other means at our disposal uh, to, to try to deter Iran, uh, to make it more costly for Iran to move in the direction of acquiring nuclear weapons uh, than not. Uh, I think uh, that, that that's difficult that will be difficult to do, but I think it's absolutely essential. And Iran armed with nuclear weapons uh, is unacceptable. This administration has said so, previous administrations have said so. Uh, and so uh, it's now up to the Biden administration uh, to figure out how to preclude that possibility. Uh, I don't think uh, getting back into an agreement that was fundamentally flawed in the first in the first place, uh, with a sunset date uh, that would allow Iran to continue uh, surreptitiously to develop its own capabilities for nuclear weapons uh, is is the answer. Uh, I uh, I favor a little uh, a little more aggressive use uh, of uh, hard power combined with soft power. 
David, you mentioned uh, earlier you know, in passing the uh, INF Treaty, which the United States uh, pulled out of in response to Russian uh, violations during the previous administration. Um, when we were actually in that treaty, um, how did our allies sort of view our participation in that bilateral treaty? Uh, were they concerned that uh, we had sort of taken away some of our nuclear options by abiding that treaty? Um, or were they, you know, reassured by the fact that we were in, in that treaty uh, for purposes having to do perhaps with uh, alleged stability? Uh, your, your thoughts on kind of that historical period and, and how our allies uh, viewed our participation in the uh, INF treaty? Yeah, well, I, uh, I wasn't in, uh, in uh, the administration at the time that the INF Treaty was negotiated uh, and signed. Uh, at the time, uh, look, I would argue that uh, it, it, it had some significant benefits. You may recall that the Soviets were reluctant to sign on to anything that, that basically nullified their advantage in intermediate range nuclear forces which they had. And it wasn't until the United States went forward with counter deployments of its own, uh, uh, the Pershing II uh, ballistic missile uh, and uh, ground launch cruise missiles that the Soviets finally got serious about a treaty that would actually eliminate those nuclear forces. And in fact, that's what the INF treaty did. Un unfortunately, over time, it became clear uh, that uh, the Russian Federation uh, went ahead and started to develop and deploy capabilities in violation of that treaty. Uh, and uh, I believe that, that was known in the Obama administration, it was known in the Trump administration, uh, but it, it took President Trump uh, to basically announce uh, in 2019 that the United States would no longer be unilaterally bound by that. Now, how did the allies view that? Uh, I think, you know, uh, the allies, uh, U.S. allies generally appreciate arms control agreements between the United States uh, and Russia, because there's a sense that they provide some degree of stability or predictability there. Uh, but I also believe that the allies understood and recognized, and, and NATO, uh, NATO statements supported this, uh, that an agreement really is useless uh, if the, uh, if one of the parties to the agreement is cheating on it, and if the agreement only binds one party in particular. Uh, and so I think uh, when, we, uh, when we withdrew from the INF Treaty, I think it was an understanding that it was the right thing to do, uh, because uh, clearly uh, the Russians had been in violation of that treaty for some time. Thank you. Uh, next question has to do with uh, the credibility of our U.S. nuclear deterrence. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, extended deterrence and the nuclear umbrella. Um, what, uh, what are the main ingredients of that credibility? Uh, is it, you know, it involves presumably the, the actual weapons themselves, having the, having the hardware, so to speak. Um, there's also an element of political willpower and uh, the ability to communicate that willpower to uh, potential adversaries. Um, what in your view is sort of most important and, and are, might there be any other factors, again, that uh, pertain to the credibility of our nuclear deterrent forces? 
Great question. Uh, my answer to that question is D, all of the above. Uh, uh, we, need, we need to be able to have the, the physical capabilities, the weapons, uh, the systems, uh, in, in order to demonstrate that at least we have the capability uh, to confront aggression in, in order to deter it. We also need to have the will power to do so. Uh, and, and you know, I'm reminded of a, a famous statement by Henry Kissinger. Uh, after, after he left office, he admonished the allies, basically saying, stop insisting that the United States continue to extend security guarantees to you in a way that the United States uh, is unlikely to do because the United States itself is vulnerable, remains vulnerable. Uh, I think it was a telling, telling comment that Kissinger made. Of course, yeah, he admitted he wouldn't have said anything like that uh, while he was still in office, uh, but it's a telling comment because the, it's the credibility uh, of, US, uh, of US deterrence guarantees that is, is ultimately what's driving uh, the security policies of many of our friends and allies abroad. Uh, if our security guarantees are not seen as credible, uh, then uh, the benefit of our extended deterrent from a non-proliferation standpoint begins to fracture, I think. Uh, what happens if an ally or allies believe that the United States doesn't have the wherewithal or the resolve, the capability, the willpower to come to their defense if necessary? Remember, we are bound by treaty obligation to come to the defense of 29 other countries, uh, you know, including the Baltic state, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, other countries. Would the United States really risk uh, going to nuclear war to defend those countries were bound by treaty to, de to defend those countries if attacked. But do those countries see the United States security guarantee as, as credible? Uh, and uh, in fact, I think there've been a number of polls recently polling the uh, populations in other countries. Uh, there, was, there was one about whether or not their own populations would support going to war to defend another NATO country if the other NATO country was attacked. Uh, interestingly, uh, not many, uh, uh, not many, it wasn't a high percentage, I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, so credibility is all important. We need the capability and we need the willpower. And part of that willpower is, is also exercised through the other elements of state power, through the other implements at our disposal to demonstrate seriousness on our part. It doesn't all have to be military, but our military credibility can be reinforced by taking political, diplomatic, economic, other types of actions that demonstrate an absolute commitment to the security of friends and allies abroad. David, thank, thank you for, for that. I'm afraid that the, um, the, the hour has passed uh, quickly. Uh, and that we are we're now out of time, uh, and uh, very much uh, you know appreciate your willingness to share your insights and your experience uh, this afternoon, and uh, yeah, and to include your last point there about the uh, the integration of different elements of power. That is certainly something that uh, here at the Institute of World Politics uh, we emphasize quite a bit. Uh, that to be effective, those different elements of national power need to be brought together. 
uh, in order for the U.S. to be uh, successful in its uh, in, in its national security uh, strategy and its uh, its policy. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, uh, on behalf of the Institute of World Politics, I also want to thank our attendees our, our, for the, the questions. And uh, I know that they have uh, found this uh, helpful and uh, insightful this afternoon. Uh, so again, uh, David, uh, thank you for your service and your, uh, your time this afternoon. My pleasure. I appreciate being here. Appreciate the invitation to talk about these important issues. So thanks to you all again. Okay. Have a good afternoon. Take care.